If you think about the disciples, early Sunday morning, before the sun has risen, there'd be pity. It's the day after Passover, morning's approaching, and Jesus had given them many clues about what was going to happen. In fact, he spoke very directly what was going to happen, what was going to happen after those events. But at this point in time, they're confused and they're scared. They've been with Jesus for about three years. They've learned so much from him about God and what it truly means to love him. They've seen Jesus perform all sorts of miracles, healing of the sick, making the lame walk, giving sight to the blind, making the dumb speak. They had been with him when he demonstrated he had power over nature. He turned the water to wine. He multiplied the fish and the bread, fed 5,000. Another time he fed 4,000. They saw him walk on water out to their boat. There was that frightening storm in the Sea of Galilee when the storm was about to swamp him and Jesus was asleep. They finally woke him up and he commanded the winds and the waves to stop and now they're really scared because they obeyed him immediately, actually breaking the laws of physics. They were with him when Jesus cast out all sorts of demons, including those especially nasty ones that inhabit the two men in the country of the Gadarenes. They referred to themselves as legion, and when Jesus cast them out, they went into a herd of swine. And the swine went nuts and drowned themselves in the sea. They were present when Jesus brought Jairus' daughter back to life, and then later they were present when Jesus called Lazarus from out of the tomb, though he had been dead for four days. He stinketh, his sister said, don't do this. So they thought that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had been promised... But now Jesus is dead, and they're afraid. What were the religious leaders going to do next? Are they going to come after them? That's where they are on that Sunday morning. Now, Jesus has been telling them for a long time that bad things are going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. In fact, from the time uh, that John the Baptist had been murdered, Jesus had been periodically warning them, this is what's going to happen. In Luke 9.22, he said it this way, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, but he also had, and be raised the third day. In Jesus' ministry, there was a point he went all the way up to um, Syrophoenicia, um, the modern Lebanon. And from that point on, as he's working his way south back to Jerusalem, he's continually warning the disciples. The closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more he's warning them. He is going to be delivered up to be crucified. But now that that's happened, they can hardly believe that it's true. Now, the source of confusion for disciples is related to the very uh, various prophecies given in the Old Testament. And they were confusing to them. There were the prophecies, such as we discussed uh, Friday night on Good Friday, of Isaiah 53. And they speak about the Messiah coming as a suffering servant, one who would take upon himself man's iniquity and redeem him. But the majority of the Old Testament prophets describe the Messiah as coming as a conquering king, one who would throw off their expectation. They're going to throw off the yoke of Rome, and David's throne is going to be reestablished. They're going to be a preeminent nation again. That's their expectation. 
fact, that's the same reason the religious leaders rejected Jesus when he came. They did not understand Messiah coming in such a humble manner. Now, their confusion was so great, they did not even understand all that Jesus told them just a couple nights before. The night before Jesus crucified, he has a Passover meal with them. And John 13 through 17 is, we call it the ovulate, uh, or the upper room discourse. It's this very long sermon. He's trying to encourage disciples, prepare them. This is what's going to happen. You need to be ready. In John 13, 31 through 36, he told them that God was going to be glorified in him. But he was going where they could not go now, but they would come later. Then in John 14, 1 through 3, he gave them this wonderful promise, one we still find great comfort in. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also, and you know the way I'm going. Now, Thomas did not understand that, so Jesus clarified it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That's where I'm going. But don't be concerned about that. I'm coming again, and you're going to come with me. But I've got to go first and prepare things. Jesus told him he would send another comforter in the meantime. The Holy Spirit, after he departed, would come and would abide in them, even to bring to their minds remembrance of all the things that Jesus taught them. He encouraged them not to let their hearts be troubled or fearful, though he is growing away. In fact, towards the end of chapter 14, he says, you should be glad for me that I am going to be with my father. Be happy in my estate of where I am going is so much greater than we're here. I'm going to be with my father. John 15, Jesus starts explaining the necessity that they abide in him the same way a branch would abide in a vine. It draws its life from it. And you need to draw your life from me in order to bear fruit. He told them to be joyful and demonstrate his love that he has for them by loving each other the same way that he did them. So wonderful instructions there are John 15, 1 through 17. But he also warned them. The world's going to hate you. Why? Because they hate me. It hate, the world hates the Father. And yet in the midst of that, again, he reminds them, I'm going to send the Comforter. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to enable you to bear witness of me wherever you are. The Holy Spirit would enable them not to stumble even in the midst of suffering. It's John 16, 1 through 4. And though he recognized, he acknowledged them, yes, I understand this causes you sorrow at the present time. Yet, this is to your advantage, the Holy Spirit comes. Because when he does come, he's going to do a lot of things. Among them, he's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And that's necessary if people are going to get saved. He's going to guide you into truth. He's going to reveal to you as well what the Father is going to disclose is to come, and he's going to glorify Christ. So it's even to your advantage that I go away, he tells them. As he gets towards the end of chapter 16, he warns them again that he's going away, but he says it's only for a little while. And then a little while I will come again. They didn't understand it, so he repeated it, clarified it. You're going to be sorrowful. You're going to lament. The world's going to rejoice. But in a short time, you will see me again, and your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. 
Now, at the present time for the disciples, that seemed a distant promise. They were in the midst of the sorrow. Jesus was dead. The world was rejoicing. At the present, it just seemed even like the promise he made concerning praying in his name in John 16, 23 through 28 seemed very distant. You pray in his name, but he's dead. We thought he was Messiah. John 16, tells us that he told them is he told them these things that they would not fear, that they would be able to have peace in the midst of tribulation. Regardless of what they were facing in the world, Jesus overcame the world, but for the moment, Jesus was dead. From their standpoint, it seemed like it was lost. Even Jesus' prayer in John 17, though it would be fulfilled at that moment, it seemed too distant for the disciples. They were confused. They were scared. They were full of doubt. Now, doubt is not an uncommon thing for us, even those who profess faith in Christians. Doubt comes. Things come up in life, and at that moment, it just seems very difficult to believe everything that Christ has promised. Doubt's part of our life. It was there with the disciples. All the truth was there, been repeated over and over and over. But at that moment, the doubt led them to fear. Been three nights, two days of sorrow for them. Remember, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The very next day, he's crucified. There's a very long night after his death. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, had told them how Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had cared for Jesus' body. Joseph placing Jesus' body in his, the tomb he had prepared for himself. Then came the long Sabbath day, and there wouldn't have been much movement because everybody was under a Sabbath restriction. They couldn't move around a whole lot. And so they were relatively safe. There's no army going to come. The Sanhedrin's going to be not in session, they're, they're busy. They're safe on that day. They're safe that night. It was a quiet night. But for them, day was approaching. What's the day going to bring? Would the religious leaders now seek them out, persecute them, squash any possibility of the followers of Jesus, Jesus creating some sort of movement in memory of, of him? What are they going to do? Morning's approaching. What's going to happen? Well, the sun had only just risen when Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Salome, Mary the mother of James, came to the disciples, they're gathered all in one place, and they reported a story that Scripture says to them seemed too incredible. And they didn't believe it. Mary said they arrived at the tomb at daybreak. They found the stone was rolled away from the opening to the tomb. They went inside, but Jesus' body wasn't there. While they were inside the tomb... Two men in glorious apparel appeared to them. It, it frightened them. They were terrified. But they calmed them down. And then one of these men, an angel, said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified. And the third day would rise again. The women remembered it. But most of the disciples thought the story was nonsense, and they refused to believe them. 
That is how great their doubt was. Eyewitnesses, they had come, and now they don't even believe it. Even with the reminder, this is what he said. Well, Peter and John decided they'd go check it out. And they both went out to the tomb. John was faster. He ran ahead of Peter. He got there first. Scripture says that he stopped at the entrance of the tomb. He stooped down and looked inside. He could see the linen wrappings in there, but he didn't go in. Peter, being Peter, because Peter always was more brash and forceful, comes up to John, goes right by him, goes into the tomb. He wants to see what's inside by being in it. And he finds the linen wrappings are lying there with the face cloth, which had been on his head, but it wasn't with the linen wrappings. Scripture says it was rolled up by itself, separate from the linen wrappings. John then went inside the tomb after Peter. The scripture says he then believed. That was all the evidence he needed. He saw it, he believed. What the women said, it was true. He was risen from the dead. Until then, he had not understood those scriptures, those promises, even the teachings of Jesus. Peter and John returned to their own homes after that. Now, Peter apparently was still perplexed. We find him in the afternoon. He is walking to a place called Emmaus with another man named Cleopas. Emmaus is about eight miles northwest of Jerusalem. And while they're walking, a stranger comes up and they start talking with him. As they start talking, they recount to this man the recent events that just happened in in Jerusalem, starting with the chief priest condemnation of Jesus and Jesus' crucifixion. They had said that they were hoping that this was the Messiah, the one who's going to redeem Israel, but it's now the third day since his crucifixion. You can see there's still doubt there. Then they added this, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. They did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also said, but him they did not see. That's Peter. So here he's recounting it. He's still not believing it. Well, at this point, this is Luke chapter 24, verse 25. The stranger rebuked him, saying this, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the thing concerning himself and all the scriptures. So he went right back to the Old Testament and went all through the prophecies saying, you should have expected this. This is exactly what the prophecies say. He would be killed as a sacrifice for sin and he would rise again. But when they arrived at Emmaus, the stranger was going to act like he was going to go on, but it was toward evening, and they convinced the man, well, stay with us. You can stay here. You can go on in the morning and share a meal with us. As they sat down to eat, the stranger took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And as he started to give it to them, the scripture says that the eyes of Cleopas and Peter were opened, and they recognized this stranger was Jesus himself. But as soon as they recognized him, he vanished. He disappeared in front of them. He wasn't there any longer. Peter and Cleopas at that point, that very hour says they returned to Jerusalem. And you can be sure they covered the eight miles very quickly. 
They had an exciting story to tell. They went right up to the upper room where the disciples had gathered and they told him, told the other disciples, the Lord has really risen and he's appeared to Simon. And they reported all that had happened that afternoon. Luke goes on and tells us that the doors are shut. They're telling the story. This is what happened. And while they're telling the story, Jesus himself suddenly appears in the room. Remember, the doors are shut. Now Jesus is suddenly there. He says, peace be with you. They're frightened, thinking it's a spirit. But Jesus said, why are you so troubled? Why do you do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and showed them his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to hear to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Now those present finally believed. They had been told and told and told. They'd had witnesses of his resurrection come that morning. Peter had said it to them just a while before, but now Christ is physically present with them and they finally believe all but one. And that was Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. So when Thomas joins them and they tell him, we've seen the Lord, Thomas's response is, unless I shall see his hands, the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand to his side, I will not believe. Now, a lot of times we get down on Thomas, don't we? In fact, we call him Doubting Thomas. Is Thomas any different than the other disciples? No, he really isn't. You should call them all Doubting Disciples because they all doubted the same way Thomas did. Remember, again, they were told by the women, not just one, at least four reported what they had seen and heard from the angels. Peter had reported to them after he had seen, they still didn't believe until Christ was physically present. So Thomas is no different than the rest of them. Eight days later, again, they're gathered in this room, but now all of them are there, including Thomas. The doors are shut, and suddenly Jesus is with them again. And again, he announces his presence saying, peace be with you. Now, frankly, if I was in the room and Jesus suddenly appeared, I would want him to say, peace be with you, because I would be at peace. My knees would be knocking. This is shocking. But he calms them. And then he picks on Thomas, specifically pointing him out. Reach your finger and see my hands. What did Thomas say? Unless I put my fingers in the nail prints. Jesus said, and reach your hand and put it in my side. What did Thomas say? Unless I put my hand into his side. And Jesus said, be not unbelieving, but believing. Now, there's no record of Thomas actually touching Jesus. What it records is Thomas simply said, my Lord and my God. Thomas was no longer unbelieving. He did believe. Now, as incredible as it sounded when the women first reported, all the evidence was in front of him. The witnesses of the four or more women, the witness of Peter, Cleopas, the ten disciples, Jesus now physically present, He finally believes. The grave could not hold Jesus. He had risen from the dead just as he said he would. 
Now, the scriptures inform us that Jesus remained on the earth for another 40 days following his resurrection. During that period of time, he physically appeared many times to many people. We've recounted some of those already. First one to see him physically alive was Mary Magdalene. She is the one that Jesus said, quit clinging to me, Mary. She was grabbing onto him. Next was Peter and Cleopas, then the ten together, then the eleven together. And then Jesus had told them to go to Galilee. They went to Galilee. Peter went first. He took six men with him, and he went to fishing. Peter is Peter's decisive. I'm bored. I'm going fishing. I'm doing something. So they're busy fishing. Jesus came up on the beach actually prepared breakfast for them and called the men and talked with them there. There he challenged Peter about his love. And then at another point, while they're still in Galilee, he appears to all 11 disciples on a particular mountain that he had designated. It's Matthew 28, 16. And then sometime during that period when he was in Galilee, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. Many appearances, many physical appearances to people, multiple people, multiple times. So this is not a hallucination. It's not mass hallucination. These are numerous occurrences. During this time, it's demonstrated that Jesus was more than a spirit. That's very important to understand the resurrection. There's a lot of stories that go out and people say, well, it was just a spirit. It was an imagination, something. It was a physical presentation that Jesus gave to them. Now, his resurrected body certainly had abilities beyond our own. We don't have the ability to vanish. Now, there are times we'd like to be able to vanish, but we can't. He vanished. He had the ability to appear suddenly in a room that was shut. We can't do that either. So whatever his physical characteristics are, they are different than ours, and yet they're physical. Remember his first presentation to the ten. He asked for food, and he ate it. Spirits can't do that. He presented himself as, see, touch. He was not afraid of them physically touching him. He challenged Thomas to do that. Again in Galilee, he cooked breakfast for his disciples. If it was just a spirit, that's some spirit who's a cook. It's not a spirit, it's physical. We also know that during these 40 days, Jesus was speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God and giving them instructions and preparation for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 explains that to us. He gave them a commission. You will be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So they were given a specific assignment of what they were to do before he left. The last physical appearance Jesus had before all the disciples was on the Mount of Olives back in Jerusalem. And from there, he was lifted up while the disciples were looking on. And he was received up into a cloud. And while they're still gazing, you know, sort of like if you ever watch balloons you release, you know, I don't know why we do it. We just stand there and keep staring until, yeah, I think I still see it, right? We, we're just, well, that's the same thing they were doing. I think I still see him, but he went into a cloud and finally just disappeared. While they're gazing up there, 
Scriptures say that two angels appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, that's actually not a new prophecy. The only added detail here was the specific of the return. It would be in the same manner. He would come on the clouds. The promise of Jesus' return or Messiah's return is all through the Old Testament. Now, recall that Jesus told them after that final Passover meal, and again, it's John 14, 1 through 3, but such an important passage. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Prior to the resurrection, that did not comfort them. They were not at peace. Their hearts were troubled. After the resurrection, after seeing him physically, after the ascension, their hearts would not be troubled again. They would be at peace no matter what they were facing. They now understood how all the Old Testament prophecy concerning Messiah could harmonize He came first as a humble, submissive servant of the Lord in order to become the sacrifice for the sin of mankind. But in the future, he is going to return as that conquering king spoken about so much by the Old Testament prophets who would restore David's throne and reign with a rod of iron. But there's still one big question. Now that Jesus has left again and they've watched him ascend, what are they going to do? Remember beforehand, he told many times, this is going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be crucified, and I'll rise again. And they didn't get it. And so they were fearful. They were doubting. Are they really going to believe his promises this time? Would they be afraid of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin coming and then attacking them? How are they going to respond now? Would they return to their former ways? Remember that Peter, even while Jesus in that 40-day period, when he went back up to Galilee, what he said was, I'm going fishing. And it wasn't, I'm going fishing because i got to do something with my time, so I think I'll just go fishing. It was, I'm going fishing and returning to what I used to do. And he took six men with him. And when Jesus found them, they weren't recreationally fishing. They weren't relaxing. They were busy with the nets trying to catch something in order to sell and have a business. Would they return and do the same thing? Or would they take the commission Jesus gave them and follow through? Really, it comes down, would they believe God's promises? Would they be those faithful witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world? Well, the answer is the book of Acts, isn't it? This time, they did believe it. They were not filled with doubts. They understood the promises. They believed the promises, not just acknowledging them. They followed the instructions, doing whatever seemed um, correct before the Holy Spirit instead of what seemed correct before them at the moment. They waited in Jerusalem. Jesus told them to do that. They waited until the Holy Spirit came. That occurred 10 days after Jesus' ascension. They had spent that time in prayer. They had chosen a replacement for Judas, the one who had turned aside and betrayed Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down upon them and empowered them for ministry just as Jesus said he would. 
and they fulfill that commission. The rest of Acts is a selective history of the apostles fulfilling the commission Jesus gave them, demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit in witnessing in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then throughout the world. The same men that had been so afraid of the Jewish religious leaders now were bold, extremely bold, even to the very men that had orchestrated Jesus' death. Over in Acts 4, we find that Peter and John had been arrested for healing a man and for preaching in the temple. And they are brought before the same Sanhedrin, the same high priest, the same chief priest that had condemned Jesus only two months earlier. It's probably seven weeks, maybe eight. Acts chapter 4, verse 8 through 12 records the following. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, now watch what he says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders which became the very cornerstone, and there is salvation no one else. There is no name under heaven that has been given among men whereby ye must be saved. Peter does not hesitate one bit to place the responsibility of the crucifixion of Christ on their shoulders. And again, they're the same men that had killed Jesus. They still have that authority. They still could have arranged for Peter's death. But he's not hesitant this time. He's no longer hiding in an upper room. He's bold. The council threatens them, we're told. Don't preach in Jesus' name. But what is Peter's response? Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And they did not stop preaching. It's only a short time later. We don't know the exact amount. It could have been a couple of days, maybe a week or two. Where are all the apostles? They're in the temple proclaiming Christ. The religious leaders are upset. They arrest all the apostles this time. They put them in jail. It's late in the day. They'll deal with them in the morning. So all the apostles are now in jail. That night, an angel comes and opens up the jail and tells them, go on out, go back to the temple, and start preaching again in the morning. Now, there was no little commotion at the jail the next day when the Sanhedrin sent for their prisoners and the prisoners are not there. And it gets even worse when they find out the prisoners are back in the temple preaching. But that's where they were. So this time they go, and actually the Greek here is a little interesting. It's a request that they come with them back to the Sanhedrin. It's not as forceful as before. There's like something's going on here, and this is beyond us. But they come back before the Sanhedrin. And again... They are questioned. This time they say to them, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, they didn't intend to. They were because they were guilty. In fact, if I recall correctly, they had said when they were crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, his blood be upon us and our children. Well, the response the apostles proved they believe God's promises. They're no longer afraid, regardless of the danger they're facing. 
verse 29, uh, chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witness of these things, and so the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Again, no hesitancy. He lays responsibility for Jesus' death squarely on their shoulders. No hesitancy at proclaiming Jesus is raised from the dead. God has fulfilled his promise. And that boldness permeates throughout the, uh, the lives of the apostles, throughout the rest of Acts. The traditions we know about the other apostles not talked about specifically in Acts is the same thing. They are bold to the point of martyrdom. And again, the only one that did not die as a martyr was John. Only he. They were so bold, their enemies claimed that in Acts 17.6, they were turning the world upside down. Indeed, they were. It's been said that this radical change in the apostles from fearful and doubting to bold and confident is one of the greatest proofs that Jesus Christ rose from the dead because there's no other feasible explanation for it. The resurrection of Jesus proved to the apostles that all of Jesus' promises could be trusted. It resulted in a change of their focus of their lives. It went from the temporal to the eternal, from surviving one day after a day, you know, one day after another, to I'm looking to impact the world for Christ. It went from the concentration of the things of this world to a concentration of the things of heaven. They knew their lives were secure in Christ. They believed his promise he would return, he would take them to heaven to be with him forever. They also believed that if they should die before his return, it only meant a different door into his presence. That was it. That's why Paul could be so confident to live as Christ, to die as gain, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Anyone that has a purpose beyond this life only and has an assurance of heaven can be bold as they face the things of this life. And so that just brings it back to you. What about you? What do you believe regarding Jesus Christ? Most non-Christians are either ignorant of Jesus or they have rejected him outright. Some think he was simply a historical figure of some sort obscured by time, but nothing more than, a, than that, just a man. Many religious people think Jesus was a good man. They consider him maybe an ethical teacher or a good role model that became the head of a religion. Those are all nice thoughts, but those aren't what's true about Christ. They're far less than who he was. That Jesus is a different one than the one of the Bible who is God in human flesh who will return to judge in righteousness. A lesser Jesus cannot give any hope for the future based on himself. Only the Christ of the Bible can do that because only the Christ of the Bible has the ability and the power and has proven it by his resurrection. Many people claim to be Christians. They claim to believe the Bible, but their lives don't match the claim. They don't live as if they believe Jesus. They live as the disciples did an hour before daybreak on Sunday morning. Doubt and fear instead of confidence and boldness. Fear and doubt arise because it's just mere head knowledge. It's not faith, it's not trust. 
Wishing upon Jesus is not the same as having a hope in Jesus because hope is certain. Hope is a confident assurance of the future. It is not a wish into the unknown. Do you want to be bold like the apostles? Then you need to believe and trust like the apostles. You have to have faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. You then step out in trust that he will keep those promises. The proof's been given. The witnesses have been given. We don't have to have eyewitness ourselves. That's been given to us. John put it that way in 1 John. What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have beheld and touched with our hands, we bear witness to you. We simply need to believe the witnesses. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's going to grant eternal life to all who believe in him, and he will return, just as he said. The Lord is risen.